0: Welcome to the History Portal, your gateway to the history of Delaware County, Ohio, presented by the History Committee and the Delaware County District Library. My name is Andrew Vermillion, Adult Services Specialist, and I'll be your narrator for today's History Portal podcast. Today's episode, It All Happened at the Zoo, is written and researched by Katie Kramer, Outreach Associate. Today, the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium is home to more than 11,000 animals and roughly 600 species from all around the globe. The Zoo Complex is a recreational and educational destination that includes Zimbabwe Bay Water Park and Safari Golf Club. Truly, the Columbus Zoo is a world-class establishment right here in our own backyards. But I want to take you back 100 years to the beginnings of the zoo when the area was mostly farmland and wilderness. We'd like to answer the question, why did the Columbus Zoo end up in Delaware County? And what was the early history of the zoo and the zoo amusement parks? We'll take you on a tour from its inception through the 1970s. Although located in Delaware County, the zoo from its very beginning has been tied to the city of Columbus located in Franklin County. Its foundations go back to the formation of the Columbus Zoological Company, that was incorporated in 1895 by several Columbus area businessmen. In 1902, they began selling stocks for $5 a share to construct Columbus's first permanent zoo. The zoo opened up at Olentangy Park, and was called the Zoological Gardens at Olentangy Park. The zoo was located in what is now Old Beachwald at Beachwald Road and North High Street. This was considered up north from Columbus proper, and was at the time accessible only by an electric streetcar. Animals included white-tailed deer, elk, rattlesnakes, monkeys, and possibly a tiger? The zoological gardens in 1905 featured a balloon ascension with a parachuting monkey aeronaut and showcased Professor Rice's dog, pony, and monkey circus. When the zoo first opened, activities included boating and swimming in the river, a large parade field, which is where Mozart's restaurant is today, and baseball games. The biggest attraction at the zoo at this time may not have even been an animal. The park's main component was a large, expensive exhibit acquired from the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair known as Creation. According to WOSU, it was meant to be an immersive experience with a large winged female sculpture welcoming the guests. Visitors would enter the building under her wings and then board a boat and travel through passages until finally entering a dark room where they would go upstairs to a dome. While traveling along, they would hear singing choirs, watch swans swimming in the water next to them, all while viewing images of evolution or the rise and fall of ancient cities. Although the attraction was assembled, unfortunately, the very expensive mechanisms never functioned properly and the ride never actually opened at the zoo. The zoo had stiff competition for attendance. Nearby Indianola Park was adding new attractions, such as a large swimming pool, and the Olentangy Amusement Park, located near Dodger Street, was growing at the same time. By October 1905, the zoo was in bankruptcy and was forced to close. The zoo had only been open to the public for about five months. Animals and rides were sold to the Olentangy Amusement Park. Today, if you were in Beechwald, the only remains of the zoo are the former monkey house which has been turned into someone's barn at 150 West Beachwald Boulevard, and the zoo's original brick entrance which can be seen on North High Street and Beechwald Road. Interest in the creation of a zoo emerged again in 1924, after the mayor, James Thomas, and his wife visited Central America and brought home with them a ring-tailed monkey named Pedro Miguel. Pedro Miguel quickly became a nuisance to the family, so not having somewhere to keep him, the mayor gave him to Franklin Park. A few years later in 1926, the mayor visited the St. Louis Zoo and was greatly impressed and decides that his city should have a zoo as well. Zoos at this time were signs of a city's affluence and status, much like having art museums. Zoos in the early 1900s were mostly collections of animals and recreational spaces, a retreat for escaping the noise, pollution, and bustle of the city. The Columbus Zoological Society reformed with the support of Columbus Mayor Thomas, the Columbus Dispatch owner Harry P. Wolf, Simon Lazarus of the Lazarus Department Store, along with a who's who of Columbus. In November 1926, Columbus City Council President Scott Weir adopted a resolution requesting the state of Ohio to develop a 21-acre game refuge on lands east of the Scioto River in southern Delaware County, which would be called Riverside Park. From 1927 on, the Columbus Dispatch championed the new zoo, and most of the research obtained for this project was obtained from the Dispatch Archives, which... can be accessed from the Delaware Library's website. In fact, the first animals donated to the zoo were a gift from the Columbus Dispatch. In July of 1927, Columbus City Council accepted the gift of seven full-grown and one yearling reindeer that were imported from Alaska at the expense of the Columbus Dispatch. The reindeer had been on display the previous Christmas as part of a promotion by the newspaper. The newspaper had run stories daily following the progress of Santa's team from their home in Alaska, to Seattle by steamer, and then across the United States by train. Upon their arrival, excited dispatch readers from all over the region made their way to see the reindeer in person, accompanied by an expert Eskimo reindeer handler. The reindeer were paraded through the city of Columbus up and down High Street on November 26th and 27th several times before taking a tour then of the surrounding towns including Westerville and Sunbury. The reindeer were then housed in downtown Columbus and children could come visit them leading up to the Columbus Christmas Parade. The dispatch estimated that over 200,000 visitors came to see the reindeer and their handler. From the number of people who were drawn out to see the reindeer as they were paraded throughout the state, it was concluded that interest in a municipal zoo was unquestionably present here in the region. The dispatch agreed to pay for the construction and labor of an enclosure, after all the city needed a place to house the beasts. Luckily, the city had recently acquired land along the Scioto River when the O'Shaughnessy Dam had been built in 1925. The strip of land northeast of the dam alongside Riverside Drive had been called Riverside Park and it was determined that this would make an excellent site for the new zoo. People from the city were already traveling out to the park to picnic and swim and to see the newly built dam which was an attraction in and of itself. Early dispatch articles marketing the zoo explained that the area just outside of Columbus would be a recreation spot for families. Also popular in the area was the Wyandotte Inn, opened in 1929 on Riverside Drive, right beside the dam. It is interesting to note that several years later, Henri Perrault, chef to Presidents Wilson and Harding at the White House, purchased the building and ran a full-service restaurant. The inn was managed by Gene Baring, local orchestra leader, and he booked vaudeville acts and floor shows almost always a party going on at the Wyandotte Inn. Also built in 1930 was the Shawnee Hills swimming pool on West Reindeer Drive, facing Dublin Drive on the opposite bank of the Scioto River from the zoo. All these recreational attractions and the fact that the land was already in the city's hands must have figured into the selection of this site for the Columbus Zoo. An early advertisement from the Columbus Dispatch declared Riverside Drive leading out to Riverside Park, Franklin County's most beautiful scenic boulevard. A bus route run by Buckeye Stages Inc. was established bringing people from downtown Columbus to the area with three trips daily and five on the weekends. The bus route also promoted O'Shaughnessy Dam and for an additional fee went on to the girls industrial school in Rathbone. An interesting side note is that admission to the zoo was free to the public at the time. The men who first developed the concept for the zoo truly wanted it to be accessible to all people as a recreational and educational site. There was a parking fee of 10 to 15 cents, however zoo memberships which were sold for one dollar, allowed you to have free parking for the year. The first zoo membership drive in 1930 did not succeed as planned, however. The kickoff day coincided with the fire at the Ohio Penitentiary, which killed hundreds of inmates and the fun drive was called off. Per the dispatch, the original concept for the zoo was to only include North American animals. A call then was made to the public to donate animals to the zoo. The dispatch noted, Donations falling in the category I have described will be welcome from any and all sources. People immediately began to donate all their animals. In February of 1927, an alligator was gifted to the superintendent of parks. Since there were no lodgings as yet at the zoo, it was kept in the palm house of the Botanical Garden in Columbus. Many animals that became residents at the zoo were gifted, coming from many, many sources. A Capital University student gave his pet white squirrel. As exotic animals were gifted, the idea of a North American menagerie was thrown out. A pastor who had acquired two monkeys on a trip to South America gifted his pets to the zoo. Other animals were caught in the wild and brought over, such as Bengal tigers born in India. An article from 1940 showed that the zoo continued to accept animals from all sources, even at that late date. Many additions to the zoo started as family pets that people found they just could not care for. The zoo accepted many ducks around Easter time, that they just added to their existing pond, but they turned down cats, dogs, and even goldfish. The largest pet accepted was a bear, and the smallest was a mouse. The bear, named Carmichael, was given to the zoo from a woman who had acquired it in Canada and no longer thought her cellar was the proper home for it. Two alligators that were kept as pets in Florida were also given to the zoo in 1940. In 1930, a contest was held at Central High School in Columbus to design an entrance sign for the Columbus Zoological Park. The winner received $5 in gold and his design was made into a 9 foot by 18 foot sheet metal sign that hung at the opening. The sign featured a bear in front of a large setting sun. Evidence that this new zoo was attracting much attention is supported by the emergence then of a sightseeing plane service that began in 1930 under the Curtis Wright Flying Service that ran a short distance north of the dam. The first zoo amusement park opened in August 1930 across the road. It advertised rides, miniature golf, a fine dining restaurant, and dancing with a full orchestra from nine to midnight, every night except Sunday. As the fall of 1930 approached, no winter lodgings had yet been built at the O'Shaughnessy location to house the new exotic animals that would not be able to withstand the coming cold Ohio temperatures. The solution was to transport the animals to the always warm Franklin Park Botanical Garden. Bengal tigers, lions, apes, and chimpanzees were brought to Franklin Park at the expense of the Columbus Dispatch. As you entered the building, just beyond the doors was a baby elephant, and then a wildebeest, and then two black bear cubs. Large birdhouses hung from the ceiling with over 150 birds including parrots and macaws. Another large cage suspended from the ceiling held 20 common rhesus monkeys named the Cats and Jammer family. Apparently, the bars that were used to hang the animal cages suspended from the rooftop can still be seen today at the Franklin Park Conservatory. While researching the early years of the zoo, some of the best stories were of the great animal escapes. The first of which was in 1931. The Columbus Dispatch from May 5th has the wonderful headline, Downtown Streets Resemble Jungle As 25 Monkeys Revel. The animals were being transported from their winter home at the Franklin Conservatory to their new home on Riverside Drive when they escaped. Apparently they loosened their strap to the cage on East Broad and Pearl Street. One went up the fire escape of the City National Bank building and was able to cross over to the Chamber of Commerce building from there. Police and firemen were called. The animals were able to enter offices and restaurants through open windows. One made it into a kitchen and was captured with a bushel basket over its head as it sat eating a tomato. The dispatch reports they climbed telephone poles and swung from the wires and climbed to the highest points of buildings. One monkey entertained hundreds of bystanders as he climbed around the state journal sign on East Broad Street. Police had to use a garden hose to soak one monkey into submission who had climbed a tree and refused then to come down. In 1931, the Columbus Dispatch made a large contribution to the zoo that included the construction of a lion house. The dispatch also donated seals, 46 water birds, and two lions. Donated parrots were hung in suspended cages from the ceiling of the lion house. Another lion was donated from the Sells Floto Circus, which had recently been bought out. It was 1937 when the name of the zoo officially became the Columbus Zoo. The next year, 1938, the Hanline brothers opened Zoo Park the brothers had previously managed Olentangy Park. Fourteen acres were leased by Leo and Elmer Hanline. Many rides and concessions were brought over from the recently raised Olentangy Park from North High Street in Columbus. Rides included a miniature train, circle swing, and the 1914 Mangles Illion's Grand Carousel. The carousel originally operated in Coney Island at Kister's Hotel on Surf Avenue until the early 1920s when it was moved to Olentangy Park. The dance hall slash roller rink from Olentangy Park was brought over and dancing to Mel Green's Orchestra was a popular attraction as well as Saturday night square dancing to Montana Michi and his band. The dance hall would later house the Columbus Zoo's offices for a time before finally being demolished in 2006. In August of 1938, the Columbus Zoological Society held motorboat races at Griggs Dam in partnership with the Scioto Boat Club to raise money for the fledgling zoo. A news article stated that 100,000 spectators and 100 drivers were expected. They also held canoe races. They had heats for professionals as well as amateurs and races just for women. It was advertised that the last race of the day would be a free-for-all that would have no rules except no dunking. To promote the event, the dispatch took a great photograph of an RKO Palace Beauty on a speedboat with Cram, the zoo's bear cub. Readers of the dispatch were likely already a little familiar with Cram, the bear cub. See he had made news the previous week. It had been a scorching day in the 90s, so his keepers had decided to take him out of his pen and hose him down with a little water to cool off. To the amusement of the 18,000 people in attendance, he slipped his leash and Cram climbed to the top of a nearby tree. A lot going on at the zoo that day. The same day, it was reported that more than 300 children rode poor Tilly the Elephant. Penguins had arrived the previous week, a gift of the Borden Company, so that may have accounted for the large attendance at the zoo. Another day with high attendance at the zoo was the annual Columbus Dispatch Family Day at the Zoo. On this day, subscribers were able to visit Zoo Park free of charge coupons could be clipped from the Columbus Dispatch for one free ride on the aeroplanes or one free ride on the Cannonball Express. In June 1939 the Dispatch family picnic at the zoo park advertised that they would have a Tarzan yell contest. Playing in theaters in July of 1930 was the hit, the instant classic Tarzan finds a son. Johnny Weissmuller, who played Tarzan in the movies and was actually a five-time Olympic gold medal swimmer, visited the Shawnee Hills swimming pool across the river and demonstrated his swimming skills. Many of the early improvements and expansions of the zoo were the result of money given by the Works Progress Administration set out to stimulate the economy and create jobs after the Great Depression. The 1940 guidebook states that over $186,000 had been received through the WPA towards the zoo. In 1938, the zoo was able to expand after the WPA offered to construct several buildings, including the Pine Carnivore and Wagner Mammalia buildings. The Works Progress Administration also sponsored and produced the 1940 guidebook that was distributed at the zoo. It was written by the employees of the writer's program of the WPA. The guidebook states that the admission was still free and parking was only 10 cents. The parking money collected was enough to pay the director of the zoo and the employees. The keepers were under the Columbus City Water and Sewer Department. The money collected from the sales of zoo memberships, which entitled people to a year's free parking, paid for maintenance and upkeep. The Zoo Guide from 1940 also says that 11,000 $1 memberships had been sold the previous year, meeting their annual goal. During the war years, the zoo promised that no essential items were being used in keeping up the zoo carnivores were fed horse meat and for the other animals they found a fine alfalfa that grew along the river. April 1st 1939. This is the tale of the great penguin hunt of April Fool's Day. So starts the dispatch article from April 2nd. Three penguins escaped and took off for the Scioto River. The North High School Ornithology Club took to boats and helped catch one of the tiny swimmers. Nets were used and another was caught at the foot of West Lane Avenue. Cash rewards were put out and eventually all penguins were returned. Crazy as it seems, this was only the first time penguins would be loose on the Scioto River so about a month later may 15 1939 ella the elk leaps the fence at the zoo the fence was reported to be six feet high ella is spotted then on dublin bell point road zoo employees and workers from the wyandotte modeling plant took chase ella took down some 60 feet of fence during the chase the elk ended up on columbus beagle club's game preserve Shetland ponies also escaped after her, but they were easier to catch. The next summer, 1940, the Columbus Zoo brought some new human attractions to the zoo that they hoped would attract visitors. Now remember, this is still in the era where zoos were more of a menagerie and elements of the sideshow or circus sometimes were incorporated. In 1940, the Columbus Zoo invited a Hopi chief named Chief Eagle Plume from Arizona and his Winnebago wife Lone Deer to reside at the zoo for the summer. They brought with them their three-year-old named Good Corn Harvester. The family were asked to arrive by paddling down the Scioto in a canoe and land at the zoo. They were then met by Boy Scouts and campfire girls. A Columbus Dispatch article explained that the Boy Scouts helped the family raise their teepee while the campfire girls would help the wife get her home ready. It should be noted that the Hopi did not live in teepees like the Plains tribes, but historically lived in adobe houses built of clay. Seems Zoo Authorities and Chief Eagle Plume were not exactly sticklers for authenticity. For Eagle Plume's arrival, four airplanes circled overhead, and 15,000 onlookers were in attendance for the spectacle. While in residence at the zoo, the chief was to give nature talks and guide tours through the zoo. On weekends, he would sell his silver work. He was described as a lecturer, silversmith, and recording artist. He attended Yale and Columbia. His wife, Lone Deer, sold jewelry, Lone Deer is, the dispatch wrote, declared a perfect type of Indian woman. Lone Deer's portrait even hangs in the Smithsonian Museum. Having Native Americans as cultural exhibits seems to have not been too uncommon at the time. Years earlier in 1896, the Cincinnati Zoo hired 89 Sikangu Sioux from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota to live and perform at the zoo. Interestingly, in one of the articles about the Boy Scouts helping with the arrival of the Hopi family, it tells how it was planned that the Boy Scouts would hike from Camp Lazarus on 23 in Delaware to the zoo, a five-mile hike. The article also suggested that the Boy Scouts in downtown Columbus could also hike to the zoo, a 14-mile journey is one of their requirements. Personally one of our team members here on the history committee told us that her grandmother who lived on Section Line Road near the intersection of Route 42 remembers walking with her sisters unattended as a child to the zoo and back in the 1930s Meanwhile at Zoo Park in 1940 they had begun to show outdoor talking pictures and held regular Saturday night wrestling matches directed by wrestling promoter Al Haft. Haft was a wrestling trainer and promoter from 1919 into the late 1960s. Al Haft was known for starting the Midwest Wrestling Alliance. Names in professional wrestling associated with Haft were Frankie Talabar, Mildred Burke, Stacy Hall, Don Eagle, Farmer Brown, Whitey Wahlberg, Juan Sebastian, Don Fargo, Great Scott, the Swedish Angel, Lord Lansdowne, Gorgeous George, Handsome Johnny Berend, and Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, to name a few. In 1940 and 1941, the weekly two-match free shows were held at the Columbus Zoo Park. Another attraction at Zoo Park in 1940 was Mickey Mouse Town. It was reported to have been a large, miniature town behind glass, inhabited by live, white mice. The 1,000 white mice performed on miniature Ferris wheels, swings, and merry-go-rounds, and went in and out of miniature buildings such as a hotel. At the end of each season, they were given to the Ohio State Medical College for research, and fresh mice were brought the next season. It's really a shame we don't have a photo of this attraction. At the end of the 1940 season, seven elk were gifted to the zoo by the Columbus Lodge of the Elks. The Elks presented the animals as the climax of their annual picnic at O'Shaughnessy Dam as living symbols of their namesake. The Elks and the Elk were treated to a show as two escaped rhesus monkeys raced through the zoo grounds before eventually returning to Monkey Island at dusk. Other animals donated from fraternal orders were an eagle from the eagles and a lion from, you guessed it, the lions. It is interesting to note that many of the zoo's first experienced animal keepers came from circuses. Circus employees at this time had by far the most experience working with large animals and training them. When the zoo first opened. They used firemen and police officers charged with taking care of the animals. In 1946, the zoo hired two herpetologists for a brand new collection of 75 snakes. In 1948, the Columbus Zoo hired its first real elephant man, Harry Parkhurst. Parkhurst's experience included working 58 years in circuses, including Barnum and Bailey. He was to work with Tansy and Sinny, who had been with the zoo for nine and seven years in 1948. According to the Dispatch article, he hoped to teach them to lie down and sit up. The 1950s ushered in an era of expansion for the zoo. In 1951, the zoo obtained 70 acres east of State Route 257 from the Stanbury Estate. Also in 1951, the city of Columbus took over operations of the zoo and the zoo also acquired its first three gorillas. Construction was also started on the new aquarium. The dispatch touted the zoo as the 8th largest in size in the country. Membership drives were vital for the zoo. Parades in downtown Columbus were well attended affairs featuring elephants and bears and camels and clowns, oh my, visiting from the Shriners Circus. Local high school bands marched with a queen and her court and 25 lovely models. A new kiddie land within the zoo was constructed in 1955 with carnival rides. Next door at Zoo Park, they purchased a 12-foot by 18-foot television screen at a cost of $2,500. Floyd Gooding of Gooding Amusements purchased the Zoo Park from Elmer Heinlein and renamed the park Gooding's Zoo Amusement Park. A flying scooter ride, a King Auto ride, tilt-a-whirl, and 18 new dodging cars were added. A huge boom for the zoo occurred in December of 1956, when Colo, the world's first zoo-born gorilla, was born at the Columbus Zoo. The baby was a complete surprise to the gorilla keepers, and also a surprise to the veterinarian, who had stated in July of that year that the mother was not pregnant, just feeling ill. At the time, zookeepers did not think captive gorillas could be successfully bred in captivity. Males and females were kept separate at the zoo. A part-time zookeeper and veterinary student at the Columbus Zoo decided to let the two gorillas, Baron and Christina, hang out together without permission. They ended up mating and Christina became pregnant. When the baby was found still in its amniotic sac, the keeper, Dean Thomas, began resuscitation that lasted 15 minutes. There was no precedent for how to take care of a baby gorilla So by their own admission, the zoo treated it like a human baby, feeding it baby formula and putting it in disposable diapers. By February, two months later, an $11,000 new glass-walled addition to the ape house had been approved and was being built to show off the infant. The new arrival was pictured in Life magazine and on the national TV show Wide Wide World, and you asked for it. The baby was first named Cuddles, before being named Colo, a mashup of Columbus and Ohio. Colo was often dressed as a child and brought out to make appearances and promote the zoo. By 1960, the baby was 74 pounds and very strong. She was able to bend the aluminum bars of her cage and step out to freedom. However, it was reported that she didn't run away, but instead jumped right into the arms of her keeper. Luckily, a new ape house was being readied and she was quickly moved to the new, more secure living quarters. Luckily, Kolo lived to the ripe old age of 60 and had three babies of her own. When she passed away in 2017, she was the oldest known gorilla to be born in captivity. Interested in a weird but true zoo fact? In 1955, Monkey Island, an enclosure surrounded with a moat, held raccoons, but no monkeys. The previous year, the large structure surrounded by a moat had held 50 monkeys. In 1955, however, all rhesus monkeys were called into the fight against polio, giving up their kidneys to help make Jonas Salk's vaccine. Other zoos in the U.S. also donated their monkeys to the cause. For the 1955 season, they renamed the island Davy Crockett Island and stocked it with raccoons. The sign over the island read, Rhesus monkeys, they have enlisted to help fight against polio. In 1956, new monkeys were bought at a cost of $35 per monkey to repopulate the island. Where else can you get so much for so little? In 1953, admission was still free to the zoo and family memberships were being sold for only $1. The membership gave free parking for the year and admission to zoo days when members received free cokes and hot dogs and a ride on the miniature scenic railroad, the Zoo Zephyr. Some of the biggest days at Goodings Zoo Amusement Park were for an annual promotion through the Columbus Dispatch. At first these events were free, but as of 1938 were referred to as Nickel Days. The newspaper would reward subscribers with coupons for admission to the park for only one nickel. The largest crowd in zoo amusement history was on this day in 1958. They reported that 72 lost parents were returned to their children selling 182,000 tickets at five cents apiece, and that day's attendance was recorded between 60 and 70 thousand the crowd there would have been able to take a ride on the jet flyer a wooden roller coaster that had opened the year before the featured new ride in 1958 was the wild mouse other new rides included baby whip miniature octopus and miniature racing cars Plans were in the works for a funhouse. More unusual attractions included a mechanical clown band, which honestly sounds pretty terrifying, but I'd really love to see a picture of it. Throughout the 1950s, the zoo promoted its membership drives through a traveling zoo or zoo on wheels. From the photo we acquired, it appears just to be a box truck that had been painted to resemble a circus wagon that might have once paraded up and down the streets. The zoo would take their zoo-mobile to locations such as the Lane Shopping Center or to the home show at the fairgrounds. Small animals like tiger and lion cubs would be displayed to the public. The dispatch headlines in the 1960s and early 70s were dominated by great animal escapes. Earlier we mentioned the April Fools' Day penguin escape of 1939, well there was another in 1962. Nine humble penguins went AWOL and once again took to the Scioto River. The headline from the dispatch read, All dressed up, penguins found some place to go. The penguins had made an escape through a gate that had been left ajar when their pen had been cleaned. They evaded search parties who were combing the O'Shaughnessy Reservoir in boats and were first spotted upstream about two miles. A week later, in downtown Columbus, a man named Don Wanger went fishing on the Scioto River, 14 miles south of the Columbus Zoo. While fishing, a penguin swam up to him and he was able to feed the penguin fish right out of his hand zoo employees were called and they were able to capture the penguin with fish as bait a year later one penguin was still missing what happened to the last penguin nobody knows the next year in july of 1963 17 oudads, a wild horned african sheep escaped from owdad mountain a moated and fenced area at the parking lot Each Oudad weighed 100 to 200 pounds, and some made it as far as Dublin and Powell Road. A search party was assembled, including cowboys on horseback. One sheep, named Old Dad, the Oudad, was found five months later inside the fence of International Harvester on Sullivan Avenue. After being chased over a mile by three youths, it was subdued with a tranquilizer and returned to the zoo. According to the dispatch, one O'Dad was still on the loose at the time, last being seen near Plain City. However, two days later, a woman on Hague Avenue spotted a live ram grazing in her front yard. Her Scotty dog chased the ram, which caused it to leap over a 12-foot fence and escape. Never to be seen again. In most respects, the Columbus Zoo seems to have been in line with most zoos of the day who kept animals in barred cages, with little thought to creating a habitat similar to their wild home. Most articles throughout the decades praised the zoo for its modernity. However, in 1964, people were beginning to complain about many aspects of the zoo, including the dirty, smelly conditions and the number of people crammed into the viewing areas. A list of concerns included lack of drainage, lack of display areas for the number of animals, and leaks in the moat at Monkey Island. The elephant house had been closed for repairs for 5 years and it was in such bad condition they didn't want the public to see. The aquarium was also closed due to a window in the tank exploding and the zoo didn't have enough funds to pay for new glass. Luckily. New resources came in 1967, when Columbus voters approved property tax increases to support the zoo. Further improvements to the zoo came with the hiring of Jack Hanna as executive director in 1978. Hanna eliminated barred cages and provided animals with larger habitats, much more like animals' natural homes. Hanna also emphasized education and created business partnerships with the community to add revenue. Hannah ushered in the modern age of the Columbus Zoo. However, in 1982, Hannah caused ripples in the zoological society when he crossed the line, turning the zoo into a circus, allowing a tightrope walker to cross the 80-foot tiger enclosure with the animals roaming below. Hannah later regretted allowing this stunt. Before we wrap up this podcast, how about one final animal escape story? In 1979, caption read, how rooftops are haunted by escaped monkey. Three snow monkeys, or Japanese macaques, who lived on Monkey Island, swam across the water and climbed a hose to escape. One monkey returned, but two journeyed on through the treetops to some willows along the Scioto River. Jack Hanna tells the story in his autobiography, Jungle Jack My Wildlife, that chainsaws were employed to down the trees. And regain access to the monkeys, but the trees fell toward the river and the monkeys escaped again. The next time they were spotted was on Seldom Seen Road. Because of this, the monkeys were named aptly Seldom Seen Junior and Seldom Seen Senior. The monkeys were again seen in the Powell area foraging on garden vegetables and the zoo was receiving complaints about ruined gardens. Others reported the monkeys eating crab apples from their trees and swimming in their pools. One was spotted on a garage roof on Brush Road. Jack Hanna states that they were going to put a female monkey in a cage close to the woods in the hopes that it would lure the males back close enough to tranquilize. Five months later, seldom seen senior found his way back to a grove of trees outside the zoo where another attempt was made to tranquilize him, but he was able to scramble to the water and swim across the river. The two monkeys eventually moved north up I-71. A truck driver reported that he tried to lure one of the monkeys into his cab with a sandwich. The monkey apparently took the sandwich, but bolted toward a golf course. Keepers apparently afraid that the monkeys would recognize them and take off again dressed as golfers, and showed up at the golf club with tranquilizer guns. But the monkey escaped again. By fall, the monkeys had traveled over 100 miles north. In November, six months since their escape, Seldom Seen Jr. was found in a barn in Upper Sandusky and captured. Seldom Seen Jr. had led zookeepers, farmers, police, and game wardens, over 20 people, on a search for two hours once sighted. It ran from one barn to another, and then it took three hours to be enticed from the hayloft into nets. Later, Senior was located in a garage by a patrolman in Elyria, a suburb of Cleveland, and he was returned to Monkey Island. The great monkey chase was finally at an end, and likely the zoo's most incredible escape story. So, you might be wondering, if you go to the Columbus Zoo in Zumbezi Bay tomorrow, what is still left to see of the zoo's history? Well, if you were able to enter the zoo by the staff entrance, you could still see the signs for the bumper cars that were once housed there. In Adventure Cove, you can still ride the wooden roller coaster, the Sea Dragon. That opened in 1956 as Jet Flyer at Gooding Zoo Amusement Park. It was originally built in Kittyland at a cost of $100,000 and had a fighter jet theme. The coaster was renamed Sea Dragon in 1984 after the park rebranded to Wyandotte Lake. The Sea Dragon is unique in that it is still manually braked. Operators use big levers in the station to manually stop the train. The Sea Dragon is the oldest operating wooden roller coaster in Ohio. The 1914 Mongols Iliens Grand Carousel is still in operation near the entrance to the Australia section. When the city of Columbus purchased Goodings Amusement Park on February 3rd, 1981, they also purchased the 1914 carousel at this time. It is one of only 200 wooden Grand Carousels still in use today. The carousel includes 52 hand-carved horses, two chariots, and a Wurlitzer 153 band organ. In 1999, it underwent a million dollar restoration. One of the more remarkable pieces of history to have survived the many phases of renovation is a one-room schoolhouse located in the heart of Africa region. Court records show that John and Annis Williams sold the corner of their farm to the Board of Education in 1891 for $71.25. The Brick Bovee School was number 9 of 11 one room schoolhouses in Liberty Township School District in the late 1800s. The school ran until 1912, when children began to be picked up by horse drawn school wagons and transported to POW for school. Craig Askins bought the building and the grounds and enclosed it within his farm in 1950. The land was later sold to the Columbus Zoo and was used as the stage and backdrop for drum and cultural lessons called the Mudiwa Schoolhouse Stage. Our researchers contacted the zoo reports the structure is not currently in use. Today, if you visit the zoo, you can appreciate the large, naturalistic animal enclosures and the emphasis on conservation and education. The zoo is indeed a point of pride for our community. But just like in the past, the zoo compound continues to incorporate bigger and better amusements and attractions that are not precisely animal related. Within the zoo, there are classic carnival rides, but also experiences such as Dinosaur Island and a 4D theater. Zumbezi Bay Water Park now replaces Wyandot Lake and Safari Golf lies on the south side of Powell Road animal escapes still do occur maybe not as often such as in 2011 when prairie dogs dug out of their enclosure and one refused to come out of a drain pipe and the zoo continues to find fun and unusual ways to attract visitors such as wild lights and brew at the zoo the delaware library history committee would like to thank michael krieger and anthony sabo of the columbus zoo for their help on this project, as well as the staff of the Powell Historical Society. Much of the research was accomplished through the use of the Digital Archives of the Columbus Dispatch, which can be accessed through the research page at DelawareLibrary.org. More photos and information were obtained through the Ohio Memory website, also found at the research page. Please join us for our next podcast of the Delaware History Portal, brought to you by the Delaware County District Library.